Leviticus chapter 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priest shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. He shall then cut it into its pieces, with its head and its suet, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it, and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire, of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall also take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Then he shall tear it by its wings, but shall not sever it. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, on the wood, which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we come to you grateful that there is a place to bring our sin and our burdens, our cares to leave. We're grateful, Father, that you tell us to cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us. Father, we pray that you would help us tonight to delight in you, to find our joy in you. Lord, we um, see ourselves, we see a world around us that is sinful, 
We feel at times the weight of our sin more than at other times. And yet, God, we look at you and we see not only that uh, you hate sin, but God, that you have provided a way for us to come to you. And God, we want to make use of that way tonight. We come trusting in the blood of Christ, trusting in his provision, believing the things that you've said, God, are true. And Lord, we ask that you would um, give us a sense of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus and the joy that comes with that. Lord, we ask for your help as we look tonight at uh, the book of Leviticus, as we consider it. God, make it food for our soul. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like tonight to give you an introduction to the book of Leviticus, so kind of an overview. I hope over the next few weeks to spend some time in the first chapters looking at the sacrifices that are presented there. Um, But before we do that, an introduction. In the Hebrew Bible, the book of Leviticus is titled Wayikra, and I know you know exactly what that means, right? Uh, I wouldn't either, but it is the first Hebrew word in the book of Leviticus, which is translated, and he called. And that's just how they titled the book. And that's not unusual. Uh, if you could read the Hebrew word in uh, Genesis 1-1 for the title of the book of Genesis, it's in the beginning. So this one is, and he called. The, book, the, the word Leviticus comes from the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the scripture. And uh, it is kind of a, a word in the Greek that means Levitical or that which pertains to the the Levites. And it is uh, not probably the best name for the book because what we have here, while it does pertain to the Levites, doesn't just pertain to Levites. It's actually, it pertains to all of God's people. Um, It was written, when it was written, it is instruction for priests and Levites, but it was instruction for everybody. What kind of sacrifice do you bring? How do you approach God? How do you continue to walk with God? So it wasn't just for the Levites. In fact, the term Levite only appears four times in the book. Some think it would be better named the book of the priest. Some, I think, later rabbinical writings titled it that way. But even that is not the best name because, again, it is a book for everyone. In fact, in uh, Old Testament times, I suppose into New Testament times, When a child went to the synagogue and began to study there, the first book they would read and study was the book of Leviticus. And if it was only for people from the tribe of Levi, then why would you start there? But it was something that even the children needed to know. And so that's where they started. Today, let me ask you, how many of you start a reading plan to read through the Bible in a year? Have ever started a reading plan like that? How many of you have ever gotten stuck at Leviticus? (laughs) Leviticus is kind of like the death knell for reading plans for a lot of people. Because you get there and what you read is kind of unusual for our culture. and We don't offer sacrifices. There's a lot of things we don't understand. And, um, you know, if you have no familiarity with what's going on here, you can get bogged down pretty quickly. And you just stop. Or maybe you skip ahead. Or maybe you plow through, but you don't benefit as much as you 
might could have if you understood a little bit about what you were reading. Well, I hope in giving you an overview that it will help you in that, but it is, like I said, an overview primarily with a view to looking at the first chapters in coming weeks. Um, let me give you some context for the book of Leviticus. After God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, He brought them to Sinai. And they remained at Sinai for about 18 months. From Sinai, He spoke to Moses. He called to him and gave him instructions. It was not the first time He had called to Moses. The first time in Exodus chapter 3, He calls to him from the burning bush. And from there, He gives him instructions. Here's what I want you to do. And then in Exodus 19... He calls to him again, this time from a mountaintop, Sinai. He draws him up, he calls him up to the mountain, and there he gives him the law. And he also gives him instruction about how to uh, build the tabernacle and the priestly garments. In Ex- uh, or I suppose the law. And then in Exodus 24, he calls to him from the tent of meeting, the cloud that rested at the tent of meeting. And there he gives him the instruction for the uh, tabernacle and the priestly garments. After the tabernacle was made, though, God's presence rested there in Exodus chapter 40, which is the last chapter in Exodus. So just one page over from Leviticus, right? Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That glory that had been at Sinai and that had been in the tent of meeting, now it's here at the tabernacle. And if you look over into Numbers chapter 9, verse 15, we'll read to the end of the chapter. Numbers 9, verse 15. Now on the day... That the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out. And at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped. And did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. That goes to a lot of effort to say that 
You know, they moved when God moved, and if God wasn't moving, they didn't move. God led them from the tabernacle, and that was, it became the, the center of their existence. The book of Leviticus, in a, I think it's, it's framed by these mentions of the tabernacle and the glory cloud resting on it. And the events of the book of Leviticus occur over the space of about a month. Exodus ends with the glory cloud resting there on the tabernacle. And now in Leviticus 1.1, God calls to Moses from the tent of meeting. Now I mentioned a moment ago, I believe, that before the tabernacle was built, with all its furniture, there was a temporary tent of meeting. That tent of meeting was pitched outside of the camp. Because of the incident with the golden calf. God in his anger at these rebellious people. Would not camp in the middle of the people. And said in effect that he would kill them if he did. So the tent is pitched outside the camp. Moses would go outside the camp to meet with the Lord there. And the people from the camp would look out and watch him go. And see the cloud descend upon the tent. But this tent is not that tent. Now that the tabernacle has been built, that tent's not necessary. And the tent has been moved from outside the camp to inside the camp at the center. Now, something interesting to note in Exodus 33 and verse 9, when Moses would go out to that tent of meeting, that old tent of meeting, he would go in to the tent and the cloud would descend And stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. But in Exodus 40. The cloud covered the tent. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And verse 35 says. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so in in the old tent of meeting. He would go and then the cloud would come. But here the cloud is there. The glory has filled this, this place. And Moses is not to approach it. Until God calls to him. And that's what happens in Leviticus 1.1. God calls to Moses. He summons him. And from the tent of meeting, from the mercy seat, God speaks to him. And that he speaks from the mercy seat, we see in a couple of places. In Exodus 25.22, God had told him as he's giving him the instructions about how to construct all this. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And then again in Numbers 7, 89, after the fact, we're told that when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony, from between the two cherubim, so he spoke to him. So the tabernacle, and especially the mercy seat, became the place particularly associated with the presence of God. No longer outside the camp, but now at the very center of the camp. The tabernacle became, the, became central to the lives of the children of Israel because God was there. Now, we know that God's everywhere. There's no place where He's not. There's nowhere. And yet God has chosen to associate himself with some places more than others. Above the mercy seat, 
God was there. It was a place designated to meet with God from which he would speak. There are some places more associated with his presence than others, even though he's everywhere. Some places in which he makes himself known, we might say, more than others. We could say heaven is one of those places. Heaven cannot contain God. And yet we're taught to pray to our Father who is in heaven. But can God, a holy God, who heaven can't contain, can God find a dwelling place or be content to dwell in a place in this sinful world? Solomon asked the question at the dedication of the temple as he prays in 1 Kings 8.27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? This becomes one of the great themes of the Bible. God was specially present in the Garden of Eden. He met with Adam and Eve there in the cool of the evening. The tabernacle and later the temple in Jerusalem were reminders of the Garden of Eden, but even more so a reflection of God's heavenly home. But then Christ comes and we have something even better, someone better. In Jesus Christ, God dwelt on the earth in the person of His Son. In John 1.14, the Bible says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, which is literally, He tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have individually become temples of the Holy Spirit and corporately the people of God are a living temple where God dwells. A place where He has ordained that He will reside. To anyone who loves the Lord, to anyone who loves Him and obeys His word, Jesus has promised that He and His Father will come to Him and make Him our home. We will abide with Him. We will dwell with Him. In the new creation, heaven and earth are, are one and it will be loudly proclaimed there. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and He will dwell with them. Christians are a privileged people who enjoy the unique presence of God, the dwelling place of God. For these Old Testament saints... For these Old Testament people, the tabernacle was the place where God made His presence known. And it's from that place that God gives instructions to Moses. And as He does so, Leviticus is kind of a continuation of Exodus. He's given instruction about the law, the tabernacle, how to build it, how to construct it, the priestly garments. And now that the tabernacle is built, here's how you approach the God who dwells in this place. Well, let's move from um, some context to the theme. If you had to, if, if, if you think you know, what would you say the central theme of Leviticus might be? If you had to give a kind of a one-word theme. I can't hear. Foreshadowing. 
Sacrifice. Worship. I think all those things are there and true. But I would put the word holiness. Holiness. One of the the things that if you read the book of Leviticus, I think you should come away with is this. God is holy. And you have to be careful how you approach him. God's holy. And he is holy. And while the, the tent of meeting has been moved from outside the camp to the center of the camp, everything about it demonstrates the fact that God is holy. If you set out to define holiness, one of the concepts that you have to include in your definition is the concept of separation, distinction. Uh, sometimes people use the idea of, of holy other. It's, it's, you know, God is holy other. He's separate in that way. There's nothing else like Him. He is distinct. God, the King... And the lawgiver demonstrates his holiness in so many ways as we look at at these passages. He is so concerned and so careful to he, he communicates to his people in ways to demonstrate his holiness. And one of the ways that he he speaks to them and demonstrates it is in how they were to arrange their tents in the camp around the tabernacle. So he doesn't just say you can stick your tent wherever you want to. You know, the tabernacle is here and you you just pick a spot. But rather, he arranges them by tribes and he tells them where each tribe is to camp in relation to the tabernacle. In Numbers chapter 2, Numbers chapter 2 and verse 3. Now those who camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their armies and the leader of the sons of Judah. And then he starts listing them and he keeps, he keeps going south side, west side, north side. And he arranges the people around the tabernacle. Here's the order in which you will camp around the tabernacle. And then as he situates them, he situates them at a distance. You don't camp right up next to the tabernacle. In verse 2 of Numbers 2, the sons of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's households. They shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. Don't get too close. And that is for their safety. If you back up into chapter 1, verses 50 and 51. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings and they shall take care of it. They shall also camp around the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. Don't get too close. You'll camp at a distance. And then as a further safeguard, it's the Levites themselves who are camping around it. So you have to kind of wander through the camp of the Levites to get there. The way the camp is set up says something about 
God. He is, he's, he's in the camp, he's at the center of the camp, but he's distinct. And then, think about the arrangement of the tabernacle itself. In the, the if you could call it the tabernacle complex, you have you know, a courtyard. And into the courtyard, anyone could come and worship, bringing sacrifices. But then, within the courtyard, you have the tabernacle itself. And not just anybody could wander into the tabernacle. Priest could go into the tabernacle, into the holy place, where you had the golden altar and the lampstand and other pieces of furniture. But not just anybody could wander into there. And then inside of the holy place, you had another separate place. The most holy place. Where the Ark of the Covenant was. And no one could go there. Except for the high priest. And only one time a year. And so the further you went, the fewer people who could go. And only at special occasion. And with, as you were about particular business. You know, it, it demonstrated that God is holy. You don't approach Him lightly. You don't just wander in any old way and, and worship Him. You remember, maybe in Leviticus 10, when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, approached God in a way in which God had not commanded, offering strange fire, God struck them dead. And then the Lord said, Leviticus 10.3, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. God is a holy God. God's people must be a holy people. God's people are to be a separate people, a distinct people. They're not worldlings. They're called from out of the world to God. And they're set apart to Him. And they're distinct by the very fact that they belong to God. And belonging to Him, that's who they serve. They don't serve the gods of the world they don't serve the idols of the world. They don't serve themselves. They serve Him. And He explains how to serve Him. He gives us a law. And He requires not only holiness, but you keep reading, and He requires cleanness. You can be defiled, and you need to be clean. And so, in Leviticus, there are rules for cleanness. How do you approach God? How do you maintain fellowship with this God? The book of Leviticus explains that for the Old Testament worshiper. And it prefigures what Christ has done so that the New Testament worshiper can come near. What do you do when you sin against Him? What do you do when you become defiled? The book of Leviticus deals with that. Leviticus shows how Israel's unique status as the people of God was to be worked out in every part of their everyday life. In every detail. They were to express their position as God's people. And it was the right way to do this. And it was God's way. You heard my way or the highway? God's way. Next, let's 
look briefly at the structure of the book of Leviticus. The book can be divided broadly into two different parts. In the first 17 chapters, you have instructions about how to approach a holy God. And while uh, you could put, if you wanted a one word over those chapters, I would use the word sacrifice. Someone mentioned that a moment ago. Sacrifice is a big part of what we see here. And it does not involve every chapter in 1 through 17, but many of them. And enough so that that's kind of, I think, a dominant theme in those first 17 chapters. It's a way of sacrifice. And then from chapter 18 through chapter 27, you have instructions about maintaining fellowship with the Holy God. And if you wanted another one word description, you might use the word sanctification. Here's how to maintain a fellowship with a God like this. And what to do when you fail to maintain fellowship with a God like this. Within this first big section, chapters 1 through chapter 17, of sacrifice or how to approach a holy God, in chapters 1 through 7, you have the five main sacrifices described. And these were not the, the like national sacrifices, which was one of those we see in chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. But these were the sacrifices that individuals would bring those are chapters 1 through 7. And then in chapters 8, 9, and 10, you have the consecration of the priesthood. If you're going to have sacrifices, there need to be priests who make those sacrifices. And so the priests have to be set apart to God. And chapters 8, 9, and 10 deal with that as Aaron and his sons are set apart to God. And the whole you know, the ritual that they went through is they offered sacrifices and consecrated themselves. And put on those priestly garments for the first time. Chapters 11 through 15 deal with the cleanliness of the people or the consecration of the people. And then chapters 16 and 17, the Day of Atonement. So in kind of broad strokes, that's a bit about the structure. Now, I'd like to talk about something else for a few moments, and that is that within the book of Leviticus, there are many pictures, many symbols that depict some great spiritual truth. So types and symbols uh, there are many in the book of Leviticus. And you might ask, well, what is a type? One definition is this. A type is a divinely ordained picture that prefigures something to come. It's not an accidental picture. It's a divinely ordained picture. God draws the picture. And it's to demonstrate something else, an antitype. You have a, a person... An object or an event that prefigures something else. So one example that we see in the book of Leviticus is the high priest. The high priesthood of Aaron prefigures Christ's high priesthood. He's a, a picture, a type of what Christ will be. And Christ will be a better high priest. He'll accomplish more. But it is a, a picture that prefigures that. There are also symbols. And a symbol is different from a type in this way. A symbol is a vivid depiction of an eternal truth instead of a depicted future event or person. 
So it's something that could happen concurrently with the symbol, if that makes any sense at all. So let me give you an example. In the book of Leviticus, there are laws concerning leprosy. How to determine if you have leprosy, what to do if you have leprosy, what to do if you are healed of leprosy. Leprosy is a picture of the defilement of sin. But it's not a picture of something that's going to happen later. It's something that was happening already. The leprosy was real, but it was also a picture of how sin defiles a person. God used these types and symbols to teach his people the basics of their faith. And these basics are a part of this Old Testament system that was designed to be a tutor to lead them to the Lord Jesus. Now, it's important to note that a type or a symbol is only as valuable as it sheds light on and visualizes truths that are clearly stated elsewhere. And, and what I'm trying to say, I guess, is we're not, we, we don't read to try to make up types and symbols. And sometimes, I think in past days, that's been an issue, you know, where everything represents something. And, and you know, different people saw different pictures depending on who, who you read or who was talking. And we don't want to just have a, a, an imagination that's, that's drawing pictures everywhere. But there are places, there are plenty of places where it is so obvious and where God himself we look in the New Testament and the New Testament writers say, look, that's what that means. And so we're not randomly assigning values to things we see. There is much in Leviticus that so clearly points to greater realities. I don't think there's any need to have to do that. Now, you might ask, why care about types and symbols? How does a New Testament Christian benefit from looking back at types and shadows when we have the substance? Why look at the pictures when we have the reality? Well, one reason is because God taught in pictures to these people. And there's value in that. Sometimes a picture is more memorable and more gripping than a doctrinal statement. There's value in having the doctrinal statement. It's clear. It's precise. You know, all these words have definitions and you can parse them and you can wrestle over them and think, what exactly does this mean? But there's also value in the picture because the picture is something you can hang on to much more easily than you can the doctrinal statement. And so God, in his kindness, really has given us both. But in the Old Testament, he gives us so many pictures. One example of that, not necessarily in Leviticus, but one example is the Passover. As they applied the blood to the door and the, the Passover angel came and saw that blood and passed over them. I mean, once you've kind of read that and been gripped by it, how do you forget that? And it tells us something about how the blood of Christ, you know, produces for us this, this Passover so that what should be accounted to us isn't. Now, you might still argue, well, again, we have the clarity of the New Testament. Why look back at shadows? So another reason, the New Testament writers make much of these types and shadows. They talk about them, they allude to them. 
Hebrews chapter 7 through 10 is, is kind of an extended meditation on Old Testament Levitical types. And so I believe that your understanding of New Testament, your clarity about that New Testament would be much benefited by understanding something about some of the types and symbols that we see in the Old Testament. Understanding something about the sacrifices that we see in the book of Leviticus will shed light on things that you read in the New Testament. And also, while there are things that are best seen in the Newton Day sign, there are other things that you see better in the shadows. There are details that you can see when a spotlight is shown on something, but there are reliefs and lines that you might see better when shadows are cast. If you've ever sat in a deer stand, you might know what I'm talking about. Whether the sun's coming up or going down, the forest changes around you as the shadows come. And you see things that you didn't see before. And so God has given us the noonday now, but we also have the shadows, and we can benefit from both. As you read the book of Leviticus, I think it can often produce a heaviness, a weightiness, because God is holy, and you have to be careful how you approach Him. It's serious. There's a lot of bloodletting. But there should also be joy. Because God has provided a way for you to approach Him. And He Himself has provided the sacrifice for you to approach Him. And the way has been opened for you to approach Him. And if you're in Christ Jesus, there's nothing to, to hold you back. I was thinking of hymn five. Both of these realities that we read in this hymn are seen, maybe in shadows, but they're seen in the book of Leviticus. Hymn five is eternal light, eternal light. How pure the soul must be when placed within thy searching sight. It shrinks not, but with calm delight can live and look on thee. Verse three. Oh, how shall I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on my naked spirit bear the uncreated beam? How can I bear that? Verse 4. There is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, a Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. These, these prepare us for the sight of holiness above. The sons of ignorance and night can dwell in the eternal light through the eternal love. Leviticus shows us holiness, but it also shows us grace. It shows us love. And I pray that God would benefit us all as we look in the coming days. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you that in your wisdom you have included this book. And we pray, God, that as we look, that your spirit would come alongside and teach us. God, help us to see the wonderful realities of our Lord and his 
mediatorial work that uh, are portrayed here. God, we do thank you that we live in New Testament times. God, we want to see all that you mean for us to see under this, this bright light. God, we pray that you would also help us to benefit from these shadowy prefigurings. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night.